Welcome and thank you for joining us for the Church by the Glades podcast. If you would like more information about Church by the Glades, including service times and directions, visit cbglades.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 17 and verses 22 through 25. So what is up, CBG? Wow, it's good to see you. Hey, I want to jump right into that text. And to jumpstart our conversation as we think about this famous, famous story from the life of Jesus, uh, I like to ask the question, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? Every camp I say it with me, what was he thinking? By the way, do you find yourself asking that question a lot? Come on. If you have family and people you do life with, all the come on, ladies, about that husband? How many, last Christmas, like when he bought you your gift at Home Depot, you're like, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? He's an intelligent man normally, right? Good discernment. Norm. What was he? If you have teenagers, put your hands together if you have teenagers. Oh, yeah. All the time we're asking, right? What was he thinking? That girl, she's so smart. It's good to say. What was she thinking? What was she thinking? So I like to think about what Jesus was thinking about in stories like this, because the text tells us what he did and records what he said, but we don't know his thought process. So there's a, a degree of conjecture and speculation in the talk, but that's okay. That's a little slice of that in every single good sermon. I want to think about what he was thinking about. And the more I thought about what he was thinking about, I think I know what he was thinking about. Are you still with me? Are you still with me? Say yes if you are. Yes, you are. Okay. Okay, so I think to understand what's behind this famous story uh, we call the Lord's Supper, uh, when he took this metaphor with the bread and the wine and kind of, man, added this new layer of symbolism to the Passover Seder, I think he was thinking about this. Uh, the chronology is key. This is at the very end, the very end of his three-year ministry, literally hours before he's arrested it's just before he is crucified. It's not the beginning or the middle. It's at the end. It's at the end, and that's very important. Now, background and context. We know that Jesus was all about authentic Jewish ritual. 
If you go to Luke chapter 2, by the way, that's the most famous Christmas account. That's the story with the shepherds. And the, all right, so if you go to Luke chapter 2, in that same chapter, mentions three different times that his parents, Mary and Joseph, took Jesus to the temple. And the last time, he's 12, they had a journey for days. They had to camp out, literally, to get to the temple. Why? Ritual. One time he's circumcised, another time he's dedicated, and then the third time it's the high holy days. And his family was very involved, as a good Jew would be in that time, in temple ritual. And we know, by the way, Jesus knew the Bible. He knew the Torah backwards and forwards. He knew the prophets like Isaiah from memory. We knew and can believe clearly that his family was very involved in the local synagogue. You see, you didn't have a copy of the Bible in your home. Even wealthy people didn't have a copy of the Torah. The Torah was at the local synagogue. So the only way you could memorize scripture was to go and to listen carefully. And Jesus had so much memory. So we know he was involved in the synagogue. Often when he began his ministry, he'd go to the synagogue and he would preach. Right? So he was all about that authentic Jewish ritual. So we know, see, it's a three-year ministry. This is not the beginning or the middle. This is the end. We know he celebrated the Passover two times before with the 12 disciples. But there's nothing in the text at all about the first two times. My guess is there was no modification of the Seder the first two times. But this time, this third time, not at the beginning or the middle, but at the end. This time, oh my gosh, new revelation, new truth. Uh, man, he's calling out betrayers and deniers and deserters. Why, why, why does he change the symbolism of the Seder? Here's the reason why. He's hours away. It is literally in the shadow of the cross. And for disciples in the first century and disciples today, the closer we get to the cross, the clearer we understand Jesus. I think... He was thinking about trying to help them understand what was about to unfold. See, the cross shows us not just the severity of our sin, but how much God loves us. The extreme extent what Jesus would do, lay down his life to have a relationship with me and you. That's what I think he was thinking about. And I also think he was thinking about this while he's teaching these 12 disciples in that upper room. I think he was thinking about how different they were, how different they were, how unique they were, how, how different. You're, you're staring at me. Question, answer out loud, all campuses. Uh, raise your hand, raise your hand if you have preferences, opinions, tastes. Raise your hand, raise your, raise, everybody, every campus, Lake Worth Beach, keep them up, keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. Lake Worth Beach, raise your hand. DCI, raise your hand. Homestead, raise your hand. Every camp, watch it online, just put a little, I don't know, touchdown in the chat, whatever it is. All right, see your hands up, hands up. You're admitting you have preferences. Now, some of y'all did not raise your hand. You're expressing your preference not to raise your hand. That, that's okay, that's okay. So you can put your hands down, thank you so much. Um, having a preference is not a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a human thing. Having strong opinions. Who lives with someone who has strong opinions? Anybody, anybody live with someone? Look at you, look at that person right now. Some of you are afraid of that person because you'll hear about that, all right? You might think about the 12 disciples in this story and assume them to be a rather monolithic group. I mean, they're all dudes, right? They're, they're all men and they're all from the same race and same religion, they're all Jews. You might think they're just very, very, very much the same. And I would argue they were incredibly different their personalities and even their politics. They, they were different. They had diversity in that group. Think about their dispositions. Think about their personalities. Uh, Jesus nicknamed James and John, two of the 12. The nickname was called Boanerges in Aramaic. In translations, sons of thunder. 
That's a great nickname. And Orion, sons of thunder. Now, by that nickname, what can we assume? They were loud. They were boisterous. We know they were ambitious, right? Uh, Peter, Peter's personality. Oh my gosh, if James and John were loud, Peter was louder. Right? He's always talking. In fact, I love Peter. He, he's impulsive. He's reckless. He, he talks first, thinks afterwards. Do you know anybody like that? Can, can you be like that? I'm like that sometime. Uh, he's charismatic. He has leadership gifting. I love me some Peter. So he's, he's reckless. He's loud. He, he's impulsive. By contrast, Thomas, Thomas is probably highly intelligent. He's pensive. He's thoughtful. Uh, he asks good questions. Maybe a naturally skeptical person. So some are loud and they talk a lot. About a half dozen of the 12, they never talk one time in the Bible. Not a single recorded word. They're quiet. Uh, how about this? How about this? Uh, talk about how different they were. Uh, there are two Simons. One is Simon Peter. He's a famous one. There's another Simon. Uh, we get little information. We get a little bit about his name. Uh, he said, what, what's his name? Simon Jones? Simon Gonzalez? What's his name? They didn't tell us his last name or his village. He's called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. And a few of y'all know what that is. A zealot was a spiritual political party in the first century in Israel, like the Pharisees or Sadducees, but the zealots were patriots. They wanted to see the liberation of their nation and they despised the Romans. You recall the Romans were the occupiers, the oppressors, and, and so a zealot would even use violence. He could stick his dagger in the ribs of a Roman soldier or officer in a dark alley, he'd do it. And the only person a zealot hated worse than a Roman was a Jew who was complicit with the Romans. Like, I don't know, like a tax collector, like Matthew, the tax collector. Oh my gosh, Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector in the same room by themselves would kill each other, literally. But they were at the table with the Prince of Peace. But Jesus knew with these politics and this potential, how they could fragment, be divided, fight among themselves over these issues. So Jesus, I think one thing he's thinking about, I think he's thinking about their unity. Their unity. Listen, I, Charlie, thank you. One person clapping at that. I, and it's my kid. That's fine. I was talking to a couple of the staff, young staff members before church, son, about just the unity we've had at our church for decades. And uh, sadly, that's not the norm in a lot of churches. A lot of churches, people are very divisive and they kind of fight and fuss and there's church politics. And we literally have none of that here. And I want to thank you for that. I, I want to thank you. But it's not because... We all agree on everything. Oh my gosh, if the 12 disciples were diverse, look around the room at your campus right now. You see different ages, different races. I mean, we're so different. By the way, if you're watching this in some other part of the country or the world, uh, our campuses are in South Florida. This campus is in Broward County, Florida. I want to think about how different we are politically. I'm stepping in it right now for just a moment. A lot of evangelicals are, are lean hard to the right. Broward County is heavily Democratic. Man, if I, if I talked about your politics, you wouldn't align, you wouldn't agree. You have all these different issues, all these different things. We probably don't think the same. And both, some churches, everybody's kind of the same. <laughs> some churches, you walk into church, everyone's the same race. Not, not by legislation, it just kind of happens that way. Maybe everybody's the same generation. Maybe older people in the church. You go to the parking lot, they all have the same minivan. <laughs> but our church is diverse. And a diverse church is prone towards being, you know, divisive fragmentation. But here's what Jesus did. You, know, you, you take all these 12 in the room and say, okay, let's hammer out all the issues. Let's make sure that Simon and Matthew, we're talking about the politics today. No, 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 no. 
I don't know how you get a dozen different people to agree on a dozen different things. Not smart people with preferences and opinions. What a good leader does was he takes them to a bigger cause. Let me show you something way more important than your politics and your preferences and your opinions. The cross is right around the corner. That's what a good leader does. I shouldn't say this, but our, our church, we're partners with across town. They've had last few years, they've had all kinds of division, fragmentation, people suing each other in the paper for all the wrong reasons. And uh, when I first got there, a couple of the leaders of the faction said, let's just get everybody together and sit in a room and, and try to hash it out. And I'm like, no, because it won't work. How do you get people all these strong opinions to get together in a room? I've never seen it one time. I don't care how much you pray or whatever. They never get together and agree on all these things and walk out holding hands singing Kumbaya, not one time. So I said was, guess what? I'm not here to talk about the past. But if you want to roll up your sleeves and get to work, we got a city to win. We got something big. You see, unity is found under the banner of the cross of our king. That's how Christians all around the world who have different theologies and practices and, and nuances of what we believe, we come together around the cross. So everything, I think what he was thinking, everything Jesus is doing is pointing them towards the cross. The cross is right around. Get over your small, petty opinions and preferences. We got a world to win. And I'm about to give my life for that. So at our campuses, we're going to do, I don't know what you call it, Lord's Supper, communion. And I want to take some moment and unpack it for a little bit because we come not just from different places around the world, but even our Christian folks come from different kinds of churches with different theological views on this issue. So things, you know, and churches, listen, believe differently about the Lord's Supper. Uh, in fact, even when should you do it? How often? Because some churches do it once a year. Some churches do it once a month. Some churches have it once a quarter. Uh, some churches have the schedule baked into their bylaws. Uh, some of y'all come from a church background. It happens every single Sunday. In fact, in Catholicism, I'd say that communion is probably the centerpiece of the mass. So who's right? Who's right? We don't do it quite that often around here. So, so what's the right schedule? What's the Bible say? Here's what the Bible says. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 on the screen right now. It says, for as often, one more time, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So the schedule in the Bible is as often. There's no schedule. So whether we do it a lot or a little, it's a matter of preference. And that one group is right and the other group is wrong based on the word of God. There, there's no schedule prescribed in the Bible. So what I, I do here, and just my opinion, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, is with our church being so diverse, instead of doing this every week or every month, we do it less frequently, but it allows me the time to really slow down and unpack what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. So you might have a different preference, and I recognize that, but again, what's the purpose? We don't know the schedule, but the purpose is to proclaim what? The cross, the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. So I, I want to do it this week. I want to kind of explain what the whole thing is about. And I recognize different people from different backgrounds, different churches have different ideals when it comes to this thing called communion, as often as you do it. So here are some of the things we talk about and try to figure out. Uh, you know, uh, okay, so uh, what happens? What happens uh, when Jesus was saying this, this is my body talking about the bread. And if you listen to the reading carefully at the start of the, the message and about the cup or the wine, he said, this is the covenant of my blood, right? All right, so my body, my blood. So let's think about what he was thinking about. Well, some groups say, well, when Jesus said that, he was being literal. 
And they understand the Lord's Supper. By the way, what do you call it? Communion, Lord's Supper? It's not in the Bible. There's not a title given in the Bible. It talks about the table of the Lord. So if you want to call it communion, that's awesome. You want to call it Lord's Supper? That's awesome. But guess what? Even that's confusing. Right? If you canceled your dinner reservations thinking, oh, we got supper coming. Or skip breakfast in the morning. Guess what? You're going to be very disappointed in just a moment. Probably should call it the Lord's Snack, right? It's not, not much to it, the Lord's Snack. But it doesn't matter. I, I love the fact as a church, we don't get hung up on these small non-biblical issues. Well done, folks. So, so, but here's, so what's it mean? When Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, was he being literal? Okay, there's some very smart Christian groups say that's what he meant. And they literally believe when Jesus said this, when you ingest the elements of the Lord's Supper, it is transformed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. So when you're taking communion, uh, you're ingesting grace or forgiveness or the substance of salvation. By the way, I see where they get that in the Bible. But respectfully, I have a different opinion. I think Jesus is not being literal. And I love a literal interpretation of the Bible whenever possible. But here I think clearly he's using a metaphor. Jesus was such a wonderfully creative teacher, right? Parables and creativity. And he used this all the time. He was, we understand clearly not being literal. Let me give you an example. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. What was Jesus' occupation? What did he do for, pardon me, what did he do for a living? Pardon me? Right. And when we say carpenter, by the way, you think, oh, he's building cute little things, no, 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 toys or something like an elephant sand. No, no. He's more of a contractor. Probably built buildings and houses, right? I, I love Jesus had like knuckles with hair on it. He's manly, no power tools. And Jesus had guns and I love Jesus, Jesus, manly, right? So anyways, he was a carpenter. So when he said, I am the good shepherd, was he lying? Was he being disingenuous? No, he was using a metaphor. He's a shepherd or he pastors, he shepherds the flock, his people. How about this? When he said, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Anybody think Jesus changed himself in a moment to a bush for the sake of, no, no. Right. When he said, I am the bread of life. You're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is bread. Well, I'm gluten free. I can't do God. No, no, we know. <laughs> Metaphor. I think it's exactly what he's doing with the Lord's Supper. I, I think he took the Seder in context, which is already highly symbolic. Everything you ate or you drank at the Passover Seder had symbolism. Basically, the meaning was this. God hates bondage. Yes. Yes. And God loves to set people free. But everything you touched or you ate, you drank. So this third time, this third time, this last time, not at the start or the middle, but now at the end, Jesus layers on top of this already sacred and symbolic meal, a whole new layer of symbolism pointing what to the cross, pointing to the cross. So let me break it down. So when he said these things, you know, this is my body. This is my blood. When he, when he, when he talked about the bread, the bread, uh, the bread represents the body of Christ. It is symbolic in my humble opinion. So if you take the Lord's Supper and eat it, doesn't mean you have spiritual superpowers or you're ingesting forgiveness. It's a reminder that the Son of Man, the Messiah, willingly gave his body to be a sacrifice for us. A single, sufficient, substitutionary sacrifice. Now, one thing about bread for me, if I have a little fun here, just a little conjecture. Um, bread in the ancient world was common. Bread was the common food of common people. When you think about rich people in, in antiquity, you don't think about them having bread, right? You don't think about kings and rulers going, bring me my bread. No, they'd have the finest wine and the finest cuisine. They'd have, they'd have fancy food. Bread was for the common people. In fact, the pharaohs of Egypt 
and the emperors of Rome would make sure that bread was readily available at very little price or even for free for the masses. If the common people had bread, they'd stay cool. So bread speaks not just to his body. I think bread speaks to his humanity. Because if you met Jesus or his family in Nazareth, they were what? Ordinary. If you were next door neighbors of Mary and Joseph, Jesus and his siblings, you wouldn't go, oh my gosh, they are so special. They are, no, they were regular people. Joseph was a blue collar, skilled laborer. In fact, probably lower middle class. How do we know that? Come back for Christmas. Christmas, I'll show you a little detail in, in Luke chapter two that shows us that probably middle class, lower middle class, or maybe even poverty, right? So working hard, a lot of poor people back in the day. But again, they seemed ordinary, unspecial. In the Old Testament, Isaiah said, when Messiah comes, he won't be handsome. So anytime you see a Jesus movie, it's a good looking dude playing Jesus, that's poor casting. He's not ugly, he's normal. See, the Bible says there's nothing special about his appearance or his background, his humanity. He looked like a normal person. He looked unspecial and common like bread. Now, the one place for me, the bread metaphor breaks down is, if this is your first time to do Lord's Supper with us, I want to apologize ahead of time. There's nothing that has less flavor than a communion cracker, right? A little little Lord's Supper wafer, whatever. Oh my gosh, they are so bland. They are so bland. And for me, that's where the analogy of humanity breaks down because Jesus is not bland. Jesus is far from bland. Listen, be careful when you WWJD it, right? What would Jesus do? Because Jesus was kind and generous and loving and forgiving. But occasionally, my Jesus made whips and turned over tables. Jesus is not bland. The Jesus life is not bland. Sometimes Jesus was spicy. I'm just saying. When he's unloading on the Pharisees, you know, telling them, you are a bunch of white-walled tombs with corpses inside. Spicy. Jesus, I know the bread is bland. I mean, as a kid, the first time I had the wafer, like, this is terrible. There's no flavor. Jesus adds flavor to your life. I have come that you may have life and have life with flavor, abundantly. So if you're here and not yet a Jesus follower, what a beautiful day to give yourself by faith to Christ. In a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come to these crosses around the room at your campus. And uh, as you come, you can pray a salvation prayer simply, Lord, I I want to be yours. Come into my life. Save me. A sincere prayer like that can change everything. And then the first thing you do to celebrate your new relationship with God is the Lord's Supper. And I'll tell you this, he will forgive you and he will accept you and he'll qualify for you, but he'll add flavor to your life. You follow Jesus Man, I, someone needs to invent the uh, jalapeno-infused communion wafer because he's spicy. Maybe next time we do flaming hot Doritos for Lord's Supper because Jesus is spicy. Adds flavor to life. And then the cup, the cup, the cup represents his blood. A new covenant, he said, in my blood. And uh, the blood, gosh, it, well, if the bread represents his humanity, the cup points to his divinity, his royalty. See, though, if you live next door, to, next door to Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the family, you say that they're ordinary, they're regular people, they're nice neighbors, they're hardworking, they're, they're, they're not special. You may not know they had royal blood. In fact, uh, I met, I had to trade cars recently, which that's drama, right? I, I had to do that, I had a car issue, you can pray for me and took a bath on a car anyways. I'm there doing the paperwork with the young guy and I invite everybody to church. This is before December. I invite people all the time. So I invite him to church. He says, well, I live up in Palm Beach County. I said, well, I have a campus up there. He says, well, I I don't live close to that campus. I'm going to Life Church 
Dave Campus, great church, Pastor Craig Rochelle. Dave Campus is all of the United States, actually, biggest church in the history of North America. But they're the church that innovated the U version. You know, it had the Bible right there on your smartphone for free. I think it's the biggest innovation and accessibility of the Word of God since the printing press. You can, you can yeah, clap for that. That's, that's amazing. Anybody for free can have multiple translations of the Bible. And he told me he just started reading, but he, he didn't know where to read. So he said, I started in Genesis, and now I'm in Exodus, and, and you know, I'm about to hit Leviticus. I'm like, oh my gosh, how about this? Why don't you go to the Jesus stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now I said this, now they're great. You're gonna see the story of Jesus. But in uh, Matthew chapter one, and in Luke chapter three, yeah, Ryan, skip it, because they're genealogies. In the King James, so-and-so begat so-and-so, right? A whole lot of that. They're the weird names, you won't recognize the vast majority of them. But if you take the time to read those, the, those are the, the ancestral line of Jesus through his mother and his father. Here's the crazy thing. There's a prophecy that the Messiah has to be a descendant of Abraham, of Jacob, of King David. Now the Jews in Jesus' day kept meticulous records. I mean, no need for Ancestry.com back then. They all knew their family lines going back for dozens of generations. But when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, they destroyed the wall, the city, the temple, and all those records. So no Jew from the time of Christ to the present can prove they're a descendant of King David. Just one person, King Jesus, royal blood. Through his mother and his father, the bloodline of the prophecy qualifies. He is who the Bible says, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, your ticket to heaven. There's all kinds of meaning in this. But again, it points towards the cross. And the disciples don't quite understand till after the fact, but we have the advantage that we know the whole story. So as we do communion, it doesn't forgive our sins per se. Coming to Christ does that. If you choose Christ today at your campus, man, you'll be forgiven for your sins in the past, I believe present, even the future. But what happens is this, you probably never sinned since you got saved. I got a few marks on my record just today. And what sin does for the Christian is, it doesn't cancel the relationship with the Father, but it kind of messes up the fellowship with the Father. Let me back up, right? I'm a dad, but I'm also a son. And growing up, my, God blessed me with a really good, godly dad. He took us to church. I miss my dad. He's been in heaven now for like seven years. Um, miss him so much. Such a good man. But if I, if I screwed up as a kid, right? As a teenager, I did something. He's thinking, what is he thinking, dumb kid? What are you thinking, right? He didn't disown me. No matter what I did, he went like, hey, you're out of the family. You know, no, he never did that. But man, until I apologized and owned and took responsibility, it was always a little wonky between me and my dad. The fellowship was not as much fun, but the moment I'd apologize, guess what? We're cool. That's what Christians do as we confess our sin. So uh, one thing Lord's Supper reminds us is we need to keep that list of sins short and confess and then turn from that sin. Don't just stay in that pattern of dysfunction. We, we repent. We change direction. So here's a great verse before we enjoy the Lord's Supper together or the Lord's snack. It's not much. It's pretty small. First John 1, 9 on the screen right now. I love this promise. You should probably memorize this. It says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all right? So if we confess our sin, by the way, when you confess your sin, God, I, I did this, or I said this, or I made this mistake, God's never up in heaven going, wow, thank you so much. I didn't know that. Didn't say, he knows already. Confession is just agreeing with God that what I did was wrong. 
But what a promise. No matter what it is, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you came in the room, I think you received a little piece of paper. I hope you didn't lose that. If you did, just raise your hand. We'll give you another one. We're that generous. And hopefully something to write with. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. Ushers, ushers in the back. They're gonna make their way. Just keep your hand up for a moment. I wanna have a little spiritual exercise together because I want this to be meaningful. The reason I take the time to explain the Lord's Supper is this. I have a strong distaste for religious ritual devoid of meaning. Like we do baby dedications here, we make people come to a class and understand what it means, not just show off how cute their kids are. Baptism, he said, meaning, pa Pastor Raul does not have a pen or paper. Help Pastor Raul down in the front row, y'all. Ushers, they're making their way, making their way. Just, just a second, thank y'all for helping. There's a young lady over here, a couple folks over here, we'll get it to you. So here's what we're gonna do. I want you right now in a spirit of worship and prayer to say, God, what in my life has offended you? What mistake? What act of selfishness, stupidity? What, what has, what's a hindrance in our relationship? Because I want to confess it. I want to own it. I don't want to excuse it. And I want you to take that little pen and just, just write that down. Now, by the way, no peeking at anybody else and no helping someone else. Like, honey, you need to add to that list. Don't do that. Don't do that. And by the way, if you want to write in code, that's fine. You write in code. It's between you and God and no one else. But sometimes it's just healthy to kind of write down, Lord, here are the things that I've done that I know I've fallen so short. I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna confess it. And if you do that, I wanna show you a promise. I love, I, all of Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of the great chapters in all the Bible. I love Romans chapter 8. But right there, the first part of Romans 8, there's a verse in verse 1. It's on the screen ready right now. Look at this incredible promise for Christian people. It's gonna say those who are in Christ Jesus. And the good news, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you can nail that down today. If you wanna to talk to someone when the service is done, prayer partners will be at every campus or at Best Next Steps will be folks in that room to help you out at your campus to navigate life's most brilliant decision. And today you can choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a modern day forgiven, heaven qualified disciple. But I love this promise. It says, therefore there is now, oh, that's so good. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. If I'm in Christ, if I'm saved, whether I'm good at it or not very good at it, if I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation. See, the enemy loves to make you feel dirty, like a failure. Like how could God love or use you? You've done that same thing again. But the Bible makes you a promise. Let's do what Jesus promised, confess. He promises to forgive. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus. Father God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. The disciples didn't get it. They were arguing on the way to, to that supper about who was the most important, who was the greatest, and who would have the most authority. They didn't understand. You laid down your power. You washed their feet, the job of a servant, to show them true greatness. Lord Jesus, we understand. You died on the cross to pay for our sin, and that is more than sufficient. Lord Jesus, we say thank you as we come right now. We're going to symbolically nail our sins to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today. To hear more messages like this, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Don't forget to stay connected with us by following us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at CBGlades at Pastor D Hughes.